0: Well, good morning again. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians as we continue our study in this important epistle. We have certainly been exhausting the text before us and Paul here is concerned about some very practical things for the church in Colossae, things which are timely and appropriate um, at any age in which the church has existed. These practical exhortations flowing out of the doctrine that Paul has so passionately and precisely presented to us throughout this epistle are important for us to understand and comprehend these These imperatives, of course, are gospel-empowered imperatives. God gives us the grace to do these things and, and calls us to do these things because we do them in His power through His Spirit, and so we need to keep that in mind. I think this is certainly one of the more important series of messages that I have preached as your pastor. I have taught on many things. We've talked about many doctrines. We've talked about The wonderful work of Jesus Christ and that which flows from it, which is this conduct and this behavior, Um, this series of messages I've entitled Holiness in Action. And I think it's important for us not to just see these words but to understand the words and to apply the words because to be mere hearers of the word and not doers is indeed not the place that we ought to be. And so I want to encourage you today as we study this passage that you look in the context of what paul is calling us to do and to make certain that you are indeed doing these things Um, we don't want to be people who are just glossing the text and not absorbing the impact or the meaning of the words these words are given to us for a very specific reason bearing in mind that what we're reading and studying was inspired by the holy spirit and so paul penned these words uh, not of his own volition necessarily but under the direction and inspiration of the holy spirit to be given to a body of believers who are united and joined with jesus christ and so for paul the outpouring and the demonstration of these virtues is necessary it needs to be evident and he's looking for these things in the life of the believer in the church in colossi and for the ages to come And so keep that in mind today as we study these important words and make application as we will today beginning in verse 13 as we see how these particular virtues in verse 12 play themselves out in reality. Um, So uh, if you're tired and if you've had a long weekend, um, just kind of uh, pick yourself up. You've got uh, a little bit of time just to make it through and I want to encourage you to be attentive and And we need to be attentive. It used to be back in the day, the church bells would ring about six o'clock in the evening on Saturday. Um, And those bells were there as a reminder to people to begin to prepare themselves for worship on the next day, to get things wrapped up, to get things handled in the barn, to get the kids bathed and in bed, and to get things ready for the next day because it's an important day. And I think oftentimes we exhaust ourselves on Saturdays and come to church pretty well wiped out. And so I want to encourage you to perhaps begin to marshal yourself on Saturday evenings and to be making plans accordingly so Sundays are not so tiresome for you. And I just mean that as a way of exhortation. We all need to do better in that regard, I think, just in terms of making worship a priority, both beginning on Saturday and in preparation for it through, through the evening into Sunday morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your church. Thank you for this time to be assembled together as the redeemed of Christ. We are so blessed to be known by you. We are encouraged by your word and by the fellowship of the saints. And um, it is through the ministry of the word and the fellowship of the saints that uh, we are being built up in the most precious faith. These are the ordinary means of grace, the means by which you provide to us the renewal that is promised in your word as we've studied here in colossians three ten. so we pray that you would be with us today bless us with the presence of your holy spirit alive in our minds quicken our thoughts um, sweep away the cobwebs and the fatigue and the distractions and the malaise and the angst and the worry and the anxiety and all of those things and help us for this brief moment this sweet time of reprieve, to revel in the wonders of your grace and to be mindful of your word, to to hear it and to do it and to be encouraged by it. We pray these things in the precious name of our blessed Redeemer who gave his life for us. Amen. Well, in April of 1992, Los Angeles erupted into a week-long series of riots after four police officers were acquitted of beating Rodney King. In the midst of this upheaval, Mr. King was asked by a reporter about what he thought about all the events that were unfolding, and his reply was simply, can't we all just get along? Well, Mr. King's statement resonated with many at the time and still rings true today, both in the cultural context we find ourselves in and in the church as well. As I've noted far too long, the church, the body of Christ, has been known more for its division and its strife rather than its unity and love as a reflection of the reality of the grace and forgiveness extended to us as the redeemed of Christ. Paul was clearly concerned about this issue too for the believers, the holy ones in Colossae, So much so, he pulls out the doctrine of election to impress upon the Colossians just how important these five virtues in verse 12 are and how they are demonstrated in the body by the acts of forbearance and forgiveness as communicated in verse 13. Well, in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, Paul writes as follows, "...so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion." kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another that's forbearance and forgiving each other that's forgiveness whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the lord forgave you so also should you beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, so we see here in verses in verse 12. Um, uh, that Paul is concerned, of course, with a demonstration of the reality of one's conversion by the way they conduct themselves. As I noted, Paul goes back to the very doctrine of election to serve as a foundation, to lay a foundation for why it is that Christians ought to act and behave in a certain manner. For Paul it's axiomatic that if you are the redeemed of Christ then these virtues are going to be evident in some degree throughout the course of your life. Not always perfectly, Many times we will fail in this context, but there ought to be a demonstration as we are being renewed in the image of Christ as Paul promises and taught us that would be the case in verse 10 of chapter 3. So for Paul, the evidences of regeneration are borne out by the demonstration of these virtues. Does it make us more saved? Does it make us more righteous in the eyes of of God? Our righteousness is, is secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But what it does do, as Christians live these things out, it brings a bond of unity, and ultimately what we're going to see is that all of these virtues demonstrate themselves ultimately in an attitude of forbearance and forgiveness, doing that because that is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, and that ultimately they're combined and robed together in love. That's kind of the cloak, the overcoat, if you will, of these particular virtues and the demonstration of the reality of them in our lives. And so last, we considered in verse 12 these inward virtues that we are to put on as image bearers of Christ that deal with the whole of our lives. We are to have a heart of compassion. That means how we view others and their circumstances. We are to be acting in humility our orientation towards ourselves and not esteeming ourselves too highly. Patience, how we deal with difficult circumstances and the people who become caught up in them with us. So for Paul, this is, this is important. This demonstration, this, this outpouring of a putting on of a new image borne out by the evidence of the virtues that he has identified. Now, these virtues each will have its outward evidence. A heart of compassion becomes what? Kindness. Humility acts in gentleness, and patience is going to evidence itself in the two actions before us today in verse 13, which we see where Paul says, bearing with one another, so forbearance, if you're keeping notes, and I trust that you are, it will help you stay awake, it will help you remember. Um, so, so please, I think it would be helpful to you to take notes. You should take notes. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So the idea of forbearance and forgiveness is important for Paul, and he wants to make certain that these virtues play themselves out in the reality of that um, attitude, which is significant for us, I think. We often want something to do, right? We often look to the Scripture to say, okay, what do I do next? Is there something that I as a Christian ought to be doing or can do? We like lists. People like things to have something to look to in terms of performance. So we're going to have that. These imperatives are there for you to what to do, not just to kind of look at and say, "Boy, I wish the guy next to me would do them better," but ultimately for you to do. And so we do them in the grace that God has provided provided to us. So what we see then in verse thirteen is that Paul now takes up two two participles to reveal the way in which the five graces of verse 12 are to be put on. Um, Now, a participle is a word derived from a verb and is used as an adjective. So, an example would be a person has a laughing face. So, that's kind of the way a participle works. And that's what we find here with verse 13. Paul is using two important ideas here. He expresses through the use of these participles, bearing with, with one another and forgiving each other. And so Paul is using grammar to emphasize the idea of the reality of what has taken place for us in the preceding verses, in particular verse 10. We can't forget verse 10 because verse 10 is the, carries with it the idea of God's work in us to make these virtues evident. The idea in verse 10 is that we are being constantly renewed by the Holy Spirit as He impresses upon us the image of Christ. If you recall, if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, there's this scene where Ben-Hur's adoptive father gives him his signet ring, and he's able to use that ring, and he can smash it into a clay tablet, and he leaves an impression. And in fact, there's a scene in the movie Ben-Hur where they're betting on the upcoming horse race, and Ben-Hur's nemesis takes his signet ring when he's offered a bet on the race, and he punches it in to the clay, and that's his bond, his commitment to perform what He's been obligated to, so too Christ with us. He forms in us, He impresses upon us through the Holy Spirit His character. Now bearing in mind that all of these virtues are performed and were performed by Christ perfectly. He was always perfectly one who had a heart of compassion. He was always perfectly kind. He was always perfectly humble. He was always perfectly gentle and He was always perfectly patient. And so as we grow in grace, as the Lord works in our lives, and this is a means by which he does this. As I noted earlier, this is a means of grace. You come to church, faith cometh by hearing. That's just not in the context of salvation, but it also speaks to the idea of you being built up in the faith. That's what's happening here every single Sunday. If you're coming here every single Sunday and you're hearing the word of God preached and you're not changing, there's something wrong. You're, you're not listening, you're not hearing, and perhaps it's because you do not have ears to hear. Perhaps it's that you're coming here out of ritual and regulation in some sense that you came to church for so many years, for so many times, and that somehow that's going to get you into heaven. If you're coming here Sunday after Sunday and you're not changing, you're the problem, not God. You need to be concerned about that. If, in fact, these virtues are not evident in your life, if they've not been evident in your life, indeed, if it's rare for these virtues to be demonstrated in your life, there's a significant problem. Because what Paul is saying to us is that these virtues are indeed part and parcel. They are the very DNA. They are the essence of the redeemed of Christ. I think we ignore these things. We look at them and they say, oh, that's nice, those are platitudes, isn't that something that's so noble? They're noble aspirations, but God forbid that I do them. I mean, come on, I, 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 I can't do that, the world's not that way anymore. People who have a heart of compassion, well, they get run over. Anyone who's kind is mocked. If you're gentle, you're, you're nothing. You can't make it, you can't be anything. And indeed, there's so many other people who don't do those things, so I can't do them. If they're not going to do them, I'm not going to do them. This happens in the church. And again, as I've noted, the lament of the church is that we are people who don't get along typically very well. Easily slighted, easily offended, always quick to accuse. It seems to me that the option is always the nuclear option. Why is that? Why does it seem that every time something happens in the church, the first button we push is the one that says total destruction? It happens all the time. And indeed, we've become known by it. But what we see here from Paul is that because we have been chosen by God, because we are the holy and beloved of God, that he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. And as that Spirit works within us, it conforms us to the very image of Christ. And so what we see then here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, is that the outward expression... The immediate outward expression of the five virtues in verse 12 is the idea of forbearance and forgiveness. So the first participle that Paul uses is bearing with. It comes in the present tense, which means it is a constant, ongoing necessity in every single relationship that we have. The word has a significant meaning. It means to endure, to bear with, or to put up with difficult people or circumstances. You may say to me, well, pastor, the people in the church don't deserve to be treated kindly. They're not very nice. It doesn't matter. Your call, in spite of the slight, in spite of the offense, is to step back and to forbear. That is your immediate response. It is to step back and to forbear. You don't have another option. Do you hear me? Now listen, are you listening to me? You don't have another option. You don't get to be angry. You don't get to be offended. You don't get to be upset. You are to immediately forbear. That's it. Now I know that's not easy to do, and I know that goes against the grain of everything that we seem to be, but that's what we're called to do because we can do it in this power of the Spirit. Dear friends, this is essential. This is vital to the church. This is what makes us different. If I could take you and grab you by the shoulder right now, I would. Metaphorically, I'm doing that to each one of you, and I'm doing it to myself. This message is for all of us. But what we see here is that Paul says to me, the immediate consequence of the evidence of these virtues in my life is to forbear. Now praise be to God that he forbear with me. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Now Paul will tell me later in verse 13 that the reason that I do these things is because Christ did them for me. So immediately that I, I immediately know that God as the perfect, that Christ as the perfect manifestation of these virtues demonstrated the reality of the perfection in himself by forbearing with me. Look at this. Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. "...even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift..." Now look, where it's going to start. "...being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith..." Why? This was to demonstrate his righteousness because, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God had every right. You may say to me, Well, Pastor John, you don't know what they did to me, you don't know what they said to me, you cannot imagine what they have put me through. Well, God forbear with you, overlooking the sins previously committed and offered up his sin, clothing you in his righteousness when he had every right to send you to hell forever. You don't get to do it any differently. You don't get to change it for yourselves. You don't get to be the exception to the rule and say, I get to be angry all the time. Indeed, the church has people in it who are known just to be angry all the time. Well, don't talk to them. You're going to get your head chewed off. How can that possibly be? No, friends, I'm telling you, and I'm, I'm trying to make an important point here because you've got to hear this. This is so critically important to the vitality of the church Far too long, the church and pastors have ignored this because they're afraid they're going to upset somebody or offend someone or don't want to hit any hot-button issues. Well, Paul understands this has to be dealt with. Obviously, there's a problem in the church in Colossae. The false teacher has come in. He's taught them a way of thinking, a way of doing that has fostered an attitude of asserting one's rights over the others. He has to deal with that in the context of verse 11. There's a renewal in which there is no distinction. Those distinctions were creating tension, strife, anxiety within the church. People were wearing their emotions on their sleeves. They were asserting their rights over anything and everyone else. And in so doing, were are creating division within the body. There was no unity in the Colossi church. So Paul's writing to them and he's saying to them, don't forget who you are. God chose you before the foundation of the world He elected you as holy and beloved ones. And now as a consequence of that, you have been equipped. You don't get to be something different. You are going to be what God designed you to be. And the idea for Paul too is that having laid the foundation of all the wonderful doctrine in Colossians, why would you not want to? Understanding who you were. Go back to Colossians chapter 2. Go back to Colossians 121. Alienated, hostile in mind separated from God, in a domain of darkness, delivered into the realm of light. So for Paul, the reality of one's faith plays itself out in the demonstration of these actions based upon the virtues that belong to us in Christ. So forbearance is an incredibly important word. Now again, I want you to don't don't forget, It is bearing with, it is to forbear, it is to not assert a right when you may have the right to assert it. You are bearing with, you're putting up with difficult people or circumstances. And this action is to be taken reciprocally with each other, with one another. We talk about the one another's of scriptures. This is a one another. Now, oftentimes we think about the one another's as having someone over for dinner, This is the harder one another. It's easier to to give someone pizza than it is to forbear. Right? Well, we'll do the pizza all day long, but don't you dare ask me to forbear. I don't want anything to do with forbearance. I like pizza, and everyone likes pizza. So I'm going to have everybody over for pizza, but I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to forbear. I'm going to eat pizza and be angry. Now, again, friends, I want you in your mind right now, the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit now is forming your mind around this word. That this word is impacting you in a way that's going to change you. That's going to make Community Bible Church a better church. A church where there is indeed a peaceful demeanor, and attitude where there can be, in fact, a bond of unity in love because these virtues are being demonstrated in a very fundamental way, that is to forbear, to forbear. Now, the second participle that Paul uses is the one of forgiving. It's interesting that the Greek word used for forgiving here has as its root the, word, the Greek word for Grace. And so again, Paul is communicating something that's very radically different from what the world does. And again, he's using the present tense, which pictures this as a repeated, regular. Think about it. We don't just forgive every 15th Sunday. We don't just forgive on alternating Wednesdays. No, this is a repeated, regular feature, necessary, this is Paul's point, it's necessary to make relationships within the body of Christ work. You cannot be in church and carry grudges. It will not work. You cannot do it. Satan loves to play in that field. And he will play in that field all day long if you let him. And he'll chew you up. He will chew you up. So the idea, now again, forgiveness comes out of the very act of God in forgiving us. So don't forget the latter part of verse 13. The predicate, the basis for us doing this is because this is what Christ did with us He forbear, He forgave. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that He completely forgave you? Now here's the issue with forgiveness we tend to want to do it in degrees. Oh, you're forgiven. <laughs> Write that down. I get that down. Okay, I won't forget that one. That's what happens. The example given to us of both forbearance and forgiveness is what Christ did for us and what the Father did for us in Christ. It's a, again, don't forget this. Write this down in your notes. It's in the present tense. It's in the present tense. Grammar matters. The grammar matters because it's the Holy Spirit's grammar. It's not my grammar. So the present tense pictures this as a repeated, regular feature. Hey, does that car come with air conditioning? Yes, that's a great feature. I want that. That makes the car more comfortable to ride in. Churches that are forgivable to serve in. Churches that exhibit the presence of these virtues in these two qualities Our churches that are pleasing to the Lord are a sweet aroma, a sacrifice of of forbearance and forgiveness is an offering that indeed the Lord would accept. As it is, is in Christ. And so we see this is what we're to do to do. It's a regular feature. And it has to be there to make relationships within the body of Christ work now. Keeping in mind, too, not only does it make relationships within the body of Christ work, but it will also make them work in your families and in your marriages. We're going to get to marriages. I just finished my 15th sermon on the one about wives submitting, so we're all good there. (laughs) The, The one for the men was super easy, half a page. I mean... No. These principles will carry themselves over into the ideas that are expressed by Paul, the imperatives that are expressed by Paul in the passages in chapter 3 that relate to husbands and wives and children and workers and all those things. This idea of forbearance and forgiveness also supplants what he will also encourage us to do in verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. Because if you're not forbearing and you're not forgiving, then you're not letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you in verse 16. You're not letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in verse 15. You're not putting on the perfect bond of unity in verse 14. And you're not doing anything in word and deed in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks if you can't be forbearing and forgiving. So you get, do you see what's going on here? If we're going to get to the benefits... And the blessings that flow out of these things that Paul's going to talk about in 14, 15, 16, and 17. We better get 12 and 13 right. See that 12 and 13 become come before? 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's just not numerically. There's a reason for that in the line of thinking that Paul is using here. There's a reason for Paul using that foundation. He knows it's important. Again, it begs the question, why isn't the church known for these things? Why isn't the church identifiable by the presence of these particular actions? Now, keep in mind, these are actions taken upon each other. Again, the grammar that Paul uses here is interesting. He uses a reflexive pronoun to indicate the reciprocal nature of the obligation of the action. It's, it's the idea of, of each one toward all. So all of us are doing this. This is the constant. We are just constantly forbearing and forgiving, just constantly. This, now, it doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin. When someone is sinned against, we take care of that. The Bible speaks of that issue. If you see your brother in sin, go to them. We take care of those things. But even in the context of doing that, there's a sense in which it's done in a forbearing and forgiving way. And so we do this with each other. And the reason that we do these things is because these two actions then are the way that we demonstrate a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You may say to me, Pastor, how do I do verse 12? I just told you. You do it by forbearing and forgiving. That's how you demonstrate it. There's your application. How do I do verse 12? I do verse 13. That's what Paul has done. But rather than doing this, as we've noted, the church oftentimes is invested in itself and its causes and its own perceived needs internally, factions within the church, divisions within the church, certain wants, certain objectives within the church. And as a consequence of that, that continues to fester and foster an attitude that's not a one of forbearance or forgiveness. My dad used to say this about churches. People blow in, they blow up, and they blow out. And that's true. They blow in, they blow up, they blow out. They don't exercise the virtues. They don't forbear. They don't forgive. They're invested in what they want and how they want it, and as a consequence of that, it all begins to disintegrate. For Paul, this is wrong. And this is an area that we all need to work on Now listen to this, the object of forbearing and forgiveness are not the same. There is a difference in how they work. They may be extended to one and the same person, but that within the person which requires forbearance and forgiveness are not the same. As someone has well said, we forbear silliness, or at least what seems to us to be silliness, we forgive sin. We forbear attitude and conduct that we may not like. We forgive sin. Do you see the difference? That's that's a big deal. And so we need to make certain that we're understanding that. So Paul covers the gamut here. Now, what's interesting is this this must be the response. For whoever has a complaint against anyone, look at this passage. Verse 13, bearing with one another, forbearance, and forgiving each other, both in the present tense, keep on forbearing, keep on forgiving, keep on keeping on forbearing, keep on keeping on forgiving, it's in perpetuity, it's forever, and you do it, whoever has a complaint against anyone. So for those of you who began to categorize in your mind that there were just certain types of people that you could never forbear and forgive, Paul's just decimated that category for you. So you're done. That's over. And so for Paul, he wants to make certain that the unity of the church is held together by the fact that there can be no categories in which someone can slip in which they are not entitled to forbearance or forgiveness. This, based upon what Paul says here in the grammar, must be the response It is not an option. So for you, again, as the believer, in the body of Christ, your immediate response, no matter what the complaint is, is to forbear and forgive. Now what's interesting about that is that when the practical consequence of that is this. You're not going to be talking about what you're upset about. right? If I'm forbearing, am I going to say something? If I'm automatically forgiving, am I, what am I doing? Am I asserting my claim? No. For Paul, this is a self-check. Now, let's say, for example, the offense is communicated. The offense does occur. Then, when the people come together, the immediate response is to forbear, is to forgive. Even if an apology isn't offered. Well, I'll forgive them if they ask me and grovel. If they'll get down on their knees and crawl across yards of glass to me, I'll forgive them. But I got to see them hurt, I want them to hurt. I can forgive when they hurt. Because I'm hurt. And if I'm hurt, they're going to hurt. So get on your knees, crawl across the grass, and come to me for forgiveness. That reminds me of a parable that Christ told about a guy who went up and beat up a guy for a penny after he had been forgiven a debt of millions of dollars. Didn't go well for him. At all. It went really bad for him. So, For Paul, again, the order of the day is the mark of a healthy church is one in which there is a continuous demonstration of forbearance and forgiveness for every single offense, slight or great. That's the mark of a healthy church. That's a tall order. God give us grace. Because our natural tendency is to not do that. We don't want to do that at work, we don't want to do that in the home. We don't want to do that in our friendships. We don't want to do that anywhere because that is hard. That takes humility. That takes patience. That takes great kindness. That takes a heart of compassion. That is so hard to do. And Satan knows it. It is the little grapes, little foxes that spoil the grapes. So something starts to happen. Rumors spread. I'm going to do this or that to deal with it. All of a sudden, bang, you've got an raging inferno in the church. Why? Because people didn't forbear and forgive. Now, this is a self-policing thing. Uh, I'm not, we're not to be, as elders in the church, constantly walking around. Are you forbearing and forgiving? Did you forbear and forgive? Did you forbear and forgive today? Am I forbearing and forgiving? No, this is self-policing. Now, the church gets involved in this in some context, but at the same time, you are to be the one checking yourself. It is the Holy Spirit working within you. If you grieve the Holy Spirit, you ought to have a sense of that. And so for Paul, we must understand that you don't get to categorize away the offense and make it something that you just can't ever forgive. Paul wants to make certain that that's understood. We don't get to be people who carry grudges. Now, he goes on to talk about, well, ultimately, too, to go back to this issue of forbearance. Forbearance and forgiveness ultimately are the proving grounds of faith. You want to prove it, that you believe it, that you are the redeemed of Christ? Here's the proving grounds. Now, the churches over the ages have forgotten that. That's why churches have such horrible reputations. You would think that people who have been invested by God with these virtues, who are called holy and beloved, the true spiritual church, Israel, the one upon whom He has set His affections from the beginning of the world before the foundation of the world in Christ, ought to evidence these things. It ought to be our mark. We should be known by our love. Isn't that what Scripture says? Oh, how they loved each other. In the book of Acts, there is a demonstration of that. And over time, we have seemed to have lost it. And so, for Paul, the forbearance and forgiveness are the proving grounds of faith. And Paul is emphasizing the fact that he expects this to be a reality. He understands that where followers of Christ are together, complaints are going to rise against each other. That happens. Paul here is a realist, and he's outlining the prescription for such occasions. He's not denying that these things don't exist within the church. That's why he's writing about them. And what's he, the interesting thing about the structure of the passage is that Paul's use of grammar here speaks to the idea that this is not only individual and personal, but it's corporately too. This is a strong exhortation against factions. You can see a similar line of thought in, in, the, in the epistles he wrote to the Corinth church in which there was a great deal of factions. Indeed, they were known for their factions and for their strife. Paul knows that it's easy to find fault with other people. Our default position oftentimes is that. But we know that we can reset default positions and we need to go back and understand who we are in light of Colossians 3.10. And far too often in the body of Christ, someone concludes that some brother or sister owes them something for a wrong done. And they're not going to be happy until they get their pound of flesh. And far too often, they're out to exact payment from that person. In such cases, the apostle clearly says, forbearance and forgiveness from a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are the order of the day. They are not options. It's an order. It's what we do. Not exercising our rights. Now, we live in a country in which we're all about our rights. And I'm fine with that. In that context, we... By god's good providence live in a nation that is governed by a legally binding document that assures to us certain rights as citizens of this country and we are well within our rights to assert them but in the church it doesn't work that way so we have to divest ourselves of a mindset that has been ingrained in us which i think sometimes can work against us in certain ways making it more difficult to do these things And so we have to keep those things in mind as we consider what Paul is saying here. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, the Bible, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, places a premium on the presence of a loving harmony in the body of Christ. And it is quick to identify those who spread division and strife within the church. Consider, for example, Paul's sharpest and most direct epistles to the church in Corinth which was not known for its love but rather for its division strife and conflict that is how we know the church in corinth is it not we know that for all of church history that's how we know the church of corinth forever consider as well what paul wrote in philippians 4 chapter or philippians chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 turn with me there to philippians Let's be mindful of what God's Word says in in the context of dealing with these particular issues and the reminders that were given in His Word about them. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Now look, at this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church. He's naming names. This is how bad it got. Look what he says. I urge Yodia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Look at verse 3. Indeed, true companion. Now, at the beginning of the Philippians, he's writing to the elders and the deacons at the church. He opens up with this passage that way. This is an exhortation to them. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. Paul's so concerned about it, and the Holy Spirit wants us to know about it, so that for all of church history, I know these two women's name, and it's because they were creating division within the church. And Paul's issuing instruction to the elders of the church to go to them and teach them, help them get beyond this, help them forbear and forgive. Teach them that this is not what Christians do. Teach them that they are to forbear and forgive. That's, that's, that's an amazing passage. That speaks to how significant this issue is for the church. Consider as well the stern instructions regarding those who divide and create strife and how you should consider your conduct in light of the responsibilities of church leadership. Look at Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. So the church is to be quick to deal with these issues. There's like a zero-tolerance policy with this. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned and turn away from them. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Here in chapter 3 of Titus, Paul's dealing with instruction to Titus about living out your faith in real time. So he tells young pastor Titus this in verse 10 Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning. Now, those are strong words. Paul could have just said sinning, the Holy Spirit could have just said, sin. no, perverted. That is contrary to their created design. We have forgotten what the word perverted means. When a man dresses up like a woman, that's perversion. He is acting contrary to his created design. That's perversion. We're not allowed to say that word anymore, but you can say it at Community Bible Church. There are no safe spaces here. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self condemned. My goodness. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. One of the most, this verse troubles me. Because I'm not exactly clear on how I'm going to have to do this at some point. But apparently, I'm going to have to do this at some point, as will the other elders of this congregation. Obey, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's sobering. So what am I to give an account of? Am I to give an account of whether or not the church demonstrated the virtues of of Colossians 3, 12 and the outpouring of them in verse 13 through forbearance and forgiveness? Apparently I am, as is Joel and Aaron and Del. At some point in time in the future, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but that's going to happen in some context. So in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the context of us acting together in the church, we have to keep this in mind. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Look at James one nineteen. Again, we're taught something here. James 1.19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. There's Colossians 3.13. James is just picking it up. Do you see a theme? Isn't it wonderful how the Bible works? He goes on to say, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Look at James 4.1. What we do know from the Bible is that quarreling and strife and division with the tr- is, a, is a mark that is associated with the world, not with the redeemed. James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasure that wage war in your members? That's what the world does. But we let the world into the church, and as a consequence, we have a problem. Look at First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter three, verse three. Paul here, and again, in this sharp rebuke to the Corinth church. Beginning with verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. What is a mark of their fleshliness? For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not fleshly, and are, are, you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Man, what a strong rebuke. He's saying because there's division and strife within the church, you're still acting in a fleshly manner. Now, we know from studying Colossians that the word flesh is not a good indicator. Paul uses the word, that same word, to mark the false teacher. And with these examples and instructions, we can understand why Paul is emphasizing these virtues in verse 12 and the real manifestation of them in verse 13. And for Paul, a healthy church demonstrates its health. Now, in conclusion... I want to share with you something that my dad wrote. My dad used to write these little booklets. This one's called, What is a Healthy Congregation? And on page four, he has a heading. I told you I grew up in a seminary. (laughs) He says, A healthy church demonstrates its health. I want to read this to you. He wrote as follows, A healthy church is an essential expression of Christ's authority, of his power in the believer's life, as well as his ordering of the work of ministry, consequently creating a community environment that produces and develops loyal disciples. However, a spiritually mature church is not simply spiritual and mature because it is faithful to special church activities or because of its faithfulness to Sunday worship service, but because it consistently demonstrates a comprehensive love for the body and a conscientious obedience to Christ. Well said, Dad. A healthy, maturing church should normally develop into a responsive, vigorous, and ministering community of believers given to the details of body life. He then quotes Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and he also quotes Colossians 2.5, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you recall, Paul, when he talked about the good order, he was speaking to a church that was conducting itself in a manner that was consistent with Scripture. Didn't mean there wasn't room for improvement. Obviously, there was. And so, according to Paul's thinking, a healthy church is typically characterized by actually following what it professes to believe and has allegedly experienced. So, as I said, I think this is one of the most important sermons I've ever preached. Because this is where the rubber meets the road, friends. You and I can sit around and talk about the doctrine of election till we're blue in the face. We can get into the weeds of all the intricacies of those things and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the bottom, at the end of the day, How you and I live out the reality of those doctrines is what matters. Do they make a difference? And this is how they make a difference. By demonstrating it with these virtues that are ultimately poured out in forbearance and forgiveness with each other. That's what matters. We've got to understand that. If we don't understand that, then we will be known by our anger and our angst rather than our peace and our joy? What would you prefer? Where do you think people want to go to church? I want to go to the peaceful, joyful church. I practice law all week. I don't want to go where there's (laughs) angst and anger. That's called a courtroom. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for Jesus Christ who lived out these virtues and these demonstrations perfectly. Thank you, Lord, for your forbearance towards us and your forgiveness of us in Christ Jesus. Lord, forgive us for not living the way that we're called to live. Forgive us for not doing these very things. Forgive us for not being forbearing. Forgive us for not being forgiving. Forgive us for keeping lists far too long and for carrying grudges forever and for being just angry, just to be angry. Forgive us for that change us, make us new, impress upon us the image of Christ, continue to renew us. We plead with you today, Lord, do that for us as only you can do. Help us to hear these words today, and we've heard them. Now help us to do them in the power of your Spirit. Give us the gospel grace that we need to do these things in a real way. May we be known by these words good virtues, and the consequent actions of forbearance and forgiveness. Help us, Lord. We are weak, you are strong, and you are mighty to save. Keep us, we pray, for your glory and for your honor. Amen.